fellowship. You know, it's so important for us to understand our purpose. And there's a line of books that are out there right now, very popular, Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life, and I think there's a lot of good in those books. I think they address the reality for many of us as Christians is we find ourselves moving along in the Christian life and and we kind of know partly what it's about. But sometimes we find that we're somewhat aimless. We wonder, well, what is it? really about? What does it really mean to be part of a church? What does it really mean to, to be a believer? Well, God has not left us to kind of figure that out and come up with slogans or purposes on our own. He's given us His Word. And He's given us His Word that we might know our purpose and by grace might pursue that purpose. And so this passage today is one of those verses, we've been looking at it already, one of those verses that clearly spells out the purpose of the church. One of the key purposes of the church. So, I'm looking forward to looking at this and learning from God the purpose of the church. It comes in the book of Ephesians, and we've been in Ephesians. And Ephesians is just such a, a wonderful book full of truth. And as I prepare this, and I, I know I've said this before, as I prepare it, I just am tempted to want to take a lot of time just to kind of go after each little word and every little verse because Ephesians as a book is just so powerful, so full of truth. And the section we're looking at today is verses 11 through 16. We'll read that in a moment. And even those verses are so packed. And so... Uh, I, I, in some ways, am tempted to take time just to look at verse 11 and talk about the nature of the leadership that God gives to His church to accomplish His purposes. Tempted to look in verse 12 and talk about how these leaders equip the church. And love just to spend more time, but we're going to focus in on one particular verse this week and kind of dissect this verse and learn about what it teaches us, and that's verse. 15 of chapter 4. And that's your memory verse on your bulletin as well for the week. So as we prepare to look at God's Word and, and then focus in on this verse, let's pray because we need God. He's faithful to teach us this morning. So Lord, we just thank You for Your Word and the preciousness and power of Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You give us our purpose in the Word. And Lord, we're not to wander aimlessly but to know what You call us to and what it is to be a believer and what it is to be a church. We thank You for that, God. But Lord, I pray that You would work today through this time that it wouldn't just be an information exchange, Lord, but there'd be transformation in our lives as You speak to us through Your Word, as You work in us and through us, O God. We just thank You for Your ministry to us in this way. We thank You that You use weak, sinful men like me, though covered in the blood and transformed by Your Spirit, nevertheless, still weak and sinful, You use me and You use us to accomplish Your glorious purposes. So we thank You. And so we ask You, Lord, to do this. Pour out Your Spirit and be glorified. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Verse 11, starting in verse 11 and going on from there. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love. Ephesians 4:11 to 16 We learned in our last message in this series about the objective of the church, the objective of fellowship is to form us in the image of Christ. We learned that Christ-likeness is not merely an individual element, not merely an individual quality, but Christ-likeness, really full biblical Christ-likeness, is a corporate quality. It's something we as a body achieve. We talked about that. Do you remember that message? I hope. A few weeks ago. So not only is it a corporate experience and a corporate goal, but it is also a corporate effort. And so we're going to take time today to look at how this corporate effort works. What is it that goes on? How does a church work together towards this goal of corporate Christlikeness? Paul has been going through this section and, and he has a wonderful picture of, first he talks about mature manhood, then he talks about uh, contrast that with being infants. Mature manhood, the individual mature man, the corporate individual, the, the church as a whole being mature. He contrasts that with being children. No longer will we be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So he talks about the alternative, being independent children. So many individuals instead of one corporate man. And those many children obviously being immature, they're infants, and they're tossed here and there, and they're subject to deceitful schemes. And then he launches into verse 15, and he says in verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Rather than being independent, immature infants, blown about by every false doctrine and weak teaching, and subject to craftiness and deceitful schemes, we will be those who reach maturity by speaking the truth in love. We speak the truth. We're not blown about. We're anchored on the truth. And it's in love, not deceitful schemes. So Paul's contrasting this here, that the alternative is speaking the truth in love. And that's how we grow up. So if there's anything you remember in the message today... If there's anything I want you to remember is that speaking the truth in love produces corporate Christlikeness. Speaking the truth in love produces corporate Christlikeness. And I apologize, I forgot to bring notes today. I had that already spelled out, but probably will help you remember that by writing it yourself. Speaking the truth in love produces corporate 
Christlikeness. So what we're going to do? Just break that down. Just look at that phrase, that part of the verse, speaking the truth in love. What is that? What does it mean to speak the truth in love? Because we want to learn what that is, right? Because if we get it and we do it, what's the result? Mature manhood, right? Corporate Christ-likeness. We as a church will look like Christ. We as a church will be effective in accomplishing the purposes of Christ. We as a church will show Christ to our community. So this is important stuff, right? We want to know what it is to speak the truth in love. We want to understand it. So it's worth taking the time just to break it down. Word by word, understand it. What does the Scripture teach about those words? What does Paul mean? What is Ultimately, what does God mean behind Paul in this? So let's tackle it a bit at a time. First, it's truth. It's speaking the truth in love. Actually, the, the, in the original language, speaking the truth is one word, and it can literally be translated truthing in love. That truthing in love is what accomplishes corporate Christ-likeness. So speaking the truth is a, is a fitting translation. Speaking the truth. But it's the truth that is spoken. What, is, what does Paul mean by the truth? What is, what is the truth? Speaking the truth in love, does that mean sharing mathematical equations, right? Because they're true. Does it mean being a good math teacher, maybe? Speaking the truth in love, you're teaching your, your students one plus one equals two, that's true. And you're doing it in love because you're a good teacher, you want your kids to learn addition and subtraction. Is, what, is that what Paul means, speaking the truth in love? I don't think so. Maybe... He means the truth of Scripture, just the overall truth. Right? God's Word is truth. We know that. Right? God's Word is God's Word, and God must be truthful, or He's not God. So anything in, in the Word is truth. So speaking the truth in love is just sharing Scriptures, general Scriptures. So, like the Ninth, ninth Commandment. Anyone know the Ninth Commandment? Ninth, yeah, very good, Steve. Uh, do not bear false witness. I don't know if I could do it on the spot like that. Very good. So the ninth commandment is do not bear false witness. So is speaking the truth in love just saying to people, I love you and I want you to know this. Do not bear false witness. I mean, there's value in that, but is that what he means? I don't think so. It's related, but I don't think that's what he means. Some people have understood speaking the truth in love as just being honest with one another. Speaking the truth, not lying, not deceiving, not hiding who you are. And, and some people I've heard of heard it taken this way, it actually means being unafraid to tell others what you think. So just tell it as it is. Speaking the truth in love is just telling it as it is. So if I come in this morning and you notice I have an attitude and, and I could be tempted yesterday I had to pay a $600 car bill and I could be tempted to complain, though I didn't. Um, but I could say I came in this morning and I just had a, an attitude. You just saw my face. I tend, to, I tend to wear attitudes on my face, so you can see it. So say, uh, you saw it on my face, and would speaking the truth in love mean coming up to me and saying, Paul, what's up with the tooth? I see it all over you. It stinks. Change it. Is that speaking the truth in love? I mean, some people have understood that to, to be that, that as Christians we're called to be brutally honest with one another. And I think there's an honesty we are called to, but I don't think it's brutal, and I don't think that's what, the, what this passage means. Well, when we encounter a word in Scripture like truth, how do we determine what is meant? How do we know it's not talking about math and being a good math teacher? Context, right? We know from context. So you start to look in the immediate context in, this, in the passage to see how the word truth is used. 
And then maybe you widen your circle of contacts. So you'd look at how Paul uses that word, right? Because a lot of the letters are written by Paul, so you can start to see how does he use truth. And then maybe we look at how the whole Bible uses that. And so that's how we do that. That's what we're going to do. That's how we know what this is talking about. In the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the word truth. Chapter 4, verse 21. He says something similar. So he talks in, in verse 15, what we're addressing. And then in verse 21, he says, but that, uh, verse 20, but that is not how the, the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. And he goes on and talks about the truth in Jesus. And, and similarly in chapter 1, verse 13, he talks about the word of truth, the gospel. So the truth in Ephesians 4, verse 15, is the truth of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and the way that Paul uses that in Ephesians and really throughout the Scriptures is not only the core truth, which is important for us to distinguish, and we'll do that in a moment, not only the core truth of the saving acts of Jesus, what He did, but the implications that come with that, that get carried along by the reality of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. So when He says, speaking the truth in love, He's talking about gospel-centered fellowship. And we use that word a lot here. We talk about gospel-centered fellowship and gospel-centered living, right? You've heard that? It's so important we understand what that means because it may sound good. It may kind of have a ring to it. Maybe it doesn't. Um, But we have to be careful to understand, well, what is that? What is gospel-centered living? What is gospel-centered fellowship? I think, I believe this is what Paul's teaching. He's calling the church to gospel-centered relationship, gospel-centered fellowship, gospel-centered life, to be speaking the truth in love. And we must understand what that means. Well, I'm going to show you a diagram in a few minutes that I think will help for those of us who are visual learners. But the gospel, the truth that we are to speak at the core is the gospel, the good news of Christ. That core, the good news of Christ, that Jesus Christ, The God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, came to fulfill all the promises and plans of God. And the core of the good news is the saving events, what He did, His work. The fact that He lived a righteous life, He died on the cross, and He rose again. Simply put, Christ died for our sins and rose again. That's the core. That's the Gospel. That's the very core, and that's not a subjective thing. You're not in that equation. It's an objective thing. It's what Jesus did. It's His actions. It's not your actions. And that truth stands no matter what you think about it, no matter what you feel about it. That truth is there. So at the core is the Gospel. And you can put that, you can put that diagram up. The Gospel, the good news of Jesus' uh, substitutionary death. He died on the cross for sins. He took the sins of His people on Himself. And He bore the just wrath for those sins. For the wages of sin is death. God is holy and good and He cannot just sweep it under the rug. So He took those sins on Himself because He loves His own. He loves His own and He wanted His own to be rescued from their sin. And so the substitutionary death and then the victorious resurrection. He rose again. Again, simply put, Jesus... Christ died for sin and rose again. That's the core gospel. So that's what Paul's talking about. But he also, I believe, means here not only the core gospel, but the truths that come with it. It's important for us to distinguish that. 
when we talk about the gospel, that's, that's the bottom line. 1 Corinthians 15.3 um, simply says, Christ died for our sins. So Paul, he says, you know, I deliver to you of a first importance. Like Christ, uh, Christ died for our sins, was buried on the third day, he rose again. That's, that's the core gospel. But with that comes gospel truth, gospel-centered truth. So with the gospel comes gospel-centered truth. It's important for us to understand the implications of the gospel. The core gospel message is very straightforward. Jesus died as a substitute for you to pay for your sins and then rose victorious over that sin and death for you as well. That's so simple a child can understand it. It's clear in Scripture. But it, it is also the implications that follow with it that really starts to shake things up. It's the gospel truth that follows in the trail of that truth that changes lives. Prior to our lifetime, smallpox was a disease that ravaged and killed millions of people. It's estimated that 90% of the native population of, of uh, the Americas died from this disease. And from the 16th to the 18th centuries that occurred, and even in the t- up to the 20th century, 500 million people died of smallpox. In the late 1700s, a farmer named Benjamin Jetsy learned that milkmaids, dairymaids, who had previously contracted cowpox, which is a, a less severe version, were immune to smallpox. And what he did is he used the cowpox to make a, a vaccination for his family. And he vaccinated them with this cowpox thing. And later on, a guy named Edward Jenner uh, developed it for the public. And actually, the word vaccination means cowination. The, the word vax is from the Latin word for cow. And so this was the first real full vaccination. Now, the truth about the cure of, cowpo- of smallpox with cowpox was known by dairy maids probably for centuries. But when this guy, Benjamin Jetsy and, and Edward Jenner, took that truth and made application with it in making a vaccination, the result was that smallpox was basically eradicated. And to this day, at this point in time, there's really, it's non-existent because of that vaccination. The Gospel works like that. The simple truth of the Gospel we can overlook, and it is very profound, it's much more profound than that story would, would relate, but it's, it is profound, but it brings with it all this implication, all this truth, all these Gospel truths follow along with it. And when we begin to understand what the Gospel means, when we begin to see the implication, that's when things get changed. That's when lives transform. That's when we start to mature. Not just knowing the Gospel facts, as important and essential as that is, but starting to understand what this means for life. And so that second circle, Gospel-centered truth, those are the truths that fall behind. And really, much of the New Testament is just an explanation of those truths. So, in the letters, when there's a problem in a church, the apostles, what do they do? They address that problem, they take the problem, and they take the Gospel, and they say, what does the Gospel say to speak to this problem? And really what the, the, the letters are about in particular are just that. So we spent time in 1 Corinthians. Remember that series? Some of us were here for the whole series. It was 
two years worth. We went through 1 Corinthians, and what we saw in 1 Corinthians is over and over again, Paul addressed the problems of the Corinthian church by taking the gospel and making application to them. So everything he called them to was derived from the good news of Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. Jesus as Savior and Lord, that he had died for our sins and risen and brought new life to us. And so much of, much of the scriptures are just that. So the verse here, Romans 8.32, is a gospel-centered truth that comes along with the gospel. Does anyone know Romans 8.32? You want to go for it? I forget the first word. Um, uh, graciously give us all things. There we go. Mm-hmm. But gave him up. Great. Very good. All right. Talk with Bar for Mrs. Buckley. Um, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And we read that this earlier. So that's a gospel truth that comes with the gospel, right? If God sent his son to die for sinners, to address the most important need to reconcile us to God, if he gave the most precious commodity in the universe, God the Son, to pay for us, to free us, to forgive us for our sins, to make us His own, to allow us to have that new life that He rose to, if He did that, then everything else is cake. Right? That's what the verse is saying. It's just taking the Gospel and, and, and walking forward with implication. If God did this, if He sent His Son for us, then surely He'll do whatever else is needed to take care of us. Everything else is minor compared to that He's done, already done that. Is that clear? Do you see how that works? It's the Gospel-centered truth. It comes from the Gospel. It's not the Gospel itself. Romans 8.32 is not the Gospel. It's not the, the message of the saving acts of Jesus Christ. But it flows from it. And that's what Paul means here when he talks about speaking the truth. And then from that, the outer circle is Gospel-centered conduct. As a result of the truth of the Gospel, as a result of the power of the Gospel, and that's an important element here, because when we understand the Gospel, when we hear that good news and we recognize by the power of the Spirit that He died for me, when we recognize I don't want to sin anymore, we see sin for what it is as something to be turned from, and we see Christ for who He is as someone to be turned to, there's change, there's power, there's repentance. And we enter into this relationship with the triune God where, where we have died to sin and live for Him. And we may struggle, but there's that essential truth of our relationship with Him. So that Gospel truth impacts our lives. And from that Gospel truth, there's the Gospel-centered the, the gospel story, the Gospel-centered truth, there's Gospel-centered conduct. So as we walk out the implications of the Gospel and the truth, because we are in Him, we have believed in Christ. We belong to Him. There's gospel-centered conduct. So much of the call of the New Testament is to walk worthy of the gospel. And what, is, what, is, what do the writers of the New Testament mean when they say that? They mean walk, walk according to the gospel. Walk as a result of the gospel. Walk in a way that you walk out the implications of the gospel. That's really what they're saying. And if you are a Christian, that's what you're called to we are united with Christ in His death and resurrection. So gospel-centered conduct. So Romans 12.1, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Right? In view of the gospel, 
in view of this work, in view of what God has done, now walk it out. Live for Him. And so when Paul's talking about speaking the truth in love, that's what he means by truth. The Gospel and Gospel-centered truth, Gospel-centered living. And so when we talk about that, that's what we mean to mean. <laughs> so we want to understand that and, and not just get used to a saying, but understand that behind it is the Scriptures and these truths. And these, if these little circles help you, that's good. And this is actually from uh, Mike Bullmore, the pastor who sent us the check this week in his church. They did a wonderful job of just coming up with that. So it's the truth. It's truthing in love. Making application of the Gospel. It's also translated in, in most English versions as speaking the truth. Because what is, what is meant by truthing? And again, uh, people have looked at the Scriptures and when Paul says truthing, uses that word truthing, and when, when it happens in the New Testament, it's usually meaning speaking the truth. It's communicating the truth and the impact of that truth to one another. So it's speaking the truth. And that's so important for us to understand too. We are a church that, that wants to live out the implications. We are very interested in application and action. And that's important. And, and it flows from the Gospel. But we must be so careful that we don't confuse the truth and the core truth with the action. Preaching the Gospel is never acting. Preaching the Gospel is always communication of the good news. The Gospel means good news. And so speaking the truth always has to have at its core the communication of the good news. No one can know good news unless you communicate it. Picture it this way. Say, say for some reason you hear before your neighbor that the situation in the Mideast has been taken care of. There's been some sort of behind-the-scenes diplomacy. The war in Iraq has settled. The Palestinian question is taken care of. There's peace in the Middle East. There's the recognition of the freedom of conscience amidst the nations in the Mideast. There's, there's this wonderful peace that has come now to the Mideast. And you know that, and your neighbor doesn't. And you think, you know what? I'm not going to tell my neighbor. I'm just going to live in a way that's consistent with the good news. And so your neighbor comes by your house, and you're all happy. And you're out gardening, and you're singing, and whistling, and thinking, oh, this is great. And, and they see you're so joyful, and they think, wow, what's going on? And well, you know, and you just, I'm just happy, and you don't tell them. You think, I'm just going to live it out. I'm just going to live out this good news in front of them. The good news of the Mideast peace. I'm just going to live it out. That's, that's what I'm called to. Matter of fact, there's a famous saint who has said, and I think that there's truth to this, says, um, oh, oh, I've lost my quote, uh, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That's Francis said that. Now, I understand the sentiment there that we're supposed to live it out, but you cannot preach the Gospel unless you use words. And so in our example, if you knew the good news in the Mideast, and you thought, I'm just going to be happy, and, and, and you're not going to help the person know the good news. It's news, right? It's information. And without communication, there's no transfer of information, and therefore no impact on your neighbor. And so there must be the point at which you say, did you hear the good news? And so, we are called to speak the truth in love. We're called to speak these truths and their implications, the Gospel, the core Gospel, and what comes with it. We're called to communicate that back and forth as a church. So speaking the truth in love is what forms maturity. The next part, speaking the truth 
hope that makes sense. We understand what that means. Then it says, in love, right? I think. Does your verse say, rather speaking the truth, we are to grow up in every way into him who is ahead? Is, that what, is there, what, what's the missing phrase? In love. Speaking the truth in love. Now, Paul didn't throw that in there just because he wanted to make us happy and have some warm fuzzies when we read through the Scriptures. Because love is a happy word and we want to do things in love. That wasn't why he put that in Scripture. There's more to it. There's more to it than that. Love must be the vehicle and the propulsion for our vehicle of delivering the truth to one another. Love must be the vehicle and what propels the vehicle to deliver the truth to one another. If you do not love as you communicate that truth with one another, as, you, as we do this thing called fellowship, then you are not obeying Scripture. You're not obeying the command. It says, speak the truth in love. In love must not be left out. And if it is left out, it's a perversion of God's ways. You see, God speaks the truth in love. Truth and love are not separate in the mind of God. He didn't just send His Son because He is truth incarnate. John 3.16 says what? What was the reason that God sent His Son? He so loved the world. His truth incarnate in His Son was delivered because of love for His people. Love motivated Him to bring the truth. Love motivated Him to accomplish the truth. Love motivated Him to speak the truth to us. This truth of speaking the truth in love comes from the very nature of God. And we see that in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Why did He make us alive together with Christ when we were dead in our trespasses? Because of His great love. It's part of the very nature of God to tie truth and love together. And so as we truth with one another, as we speak the truth, as we remind each other of the Gospel, as we remind each other of the implications as we share from our own lives how this works, as we fellowship together, love must be there and must be a vital part or it's not obeying God. It's truth without love is like a body without a heart and a mind. What do we call a body without a heart and a mind? A corpse. It's a corpse. And truth without love is like that. And we must be also careful that we don't have truth without love. Because that's not God's design. It's not a living body. We're called to be a body. Not a Frankenstein's monster of truth. But truth and love makes a body. This is what God calls us to. I hope that makes sense. I hope that helps us understand what is meant by speaking the truth and love. What I thought I'd do in the remaining time is just talk a little bit about some case studies. Just some examples and illustrations, and I promise not to use anybody in this room. But just talk about what this looks like. Because 
I think we get, the, hopefully we get the theology, the truth of Scripture, and, and, and the rest of the book of Ephesians is much of what it looks like. There are specific examples there. But I just want to talk about some examples of how it looks in a church. And I think you guys know this already because as I did this, I thought, you guys are already doing this. It's such a blessing to be part of a church that gets this to a degree and is doing that. So, in some ways, all you need to do is just get to know folks a little bit here and you'll see what truthing and love means. And so, for us, part of that is weekly coming and hearing the Word of God preached. Right now, Lord willing, I'm speaking the truth in love and doing that. So that's part of having a regular diet of hearing the Word preached. But then taking it a step further for us means going to small groups and building relationships together and communicating about that and revealing our lives, opening up our lives to one another and sharing our lives and, and learning to walk together and apply the good news of Jesus Christ. To walk out the implications that we're forgiven for all our sins in Christ. Past, present, future forgiven. To walk out the implications that I belong to Him and my future is in Him. To walk out the implications that He has brought this good news because He wants to glorify the Father and He wants people to be rescued. So walking that out. And walking together that way. So you guys are the living example of this. And and so that's just spend time together. Keep on doing what you're doing. And be encouraged. But some other examples for me. Uh, again, this is not related to anyone here in this room that I know of. Um, one example, just a little, little, little vignette. Uh, some time ago, I was in an accountability group with some good friends. One of my friends, we'll call him Kurt. They were wonderful people. He and his wife were warm and affectionate and considerate. They, they excelled in those gifts. They were very faithful and knowledgeable about the gospel and truth. But one thing I found as, as we began to meet in this accountability group is that Kurt, when someone would share their struggles, he had some great advice to give. He would have some great scriptures to point to. He would have great encouragement. But over time, it took a little while to get to know Kurt and see this, this other guy would share, this guy would share, and then Kurt never shared. Kurt was always encouraging others. He was always bringing Scripture to them, which is good. I mean, that's, that's speaking the truth in love. But Kurt never opened up his own life, at least in the beginning. And so for us, speaking the truth in love, and this was a, a church leadership accountability group, so that, that fits in the story. Little, there's a little higher commitment to accountability for leaders, and so we were able to press Kurt a little bit. Over time, just recognize, you know, Kurt, Kurt's behavior in that accountability group, though it, was, though it was great that he's encouraging others, his own lack of self-revelation was not living consistent with the Gospel. He was not living Gospel-centered living <laughs> at that point because he was obscuring who he was. And basically, the function of that, the, the, the result of that was almost saying, you know what, I don't need, I don't need what you guys are giving each other because because I, I don't have anything to share here. And so he was denying the Gospel because the Gospel says very clearly what? That we're sinners. And we need a Savior. And He paid for our sins. And He rose again. And He's working out new life in us. And so Kurt was denying that Gospel truth by his actions. And so we got to know Kurt. We took time. We didn't run into this quickly. A little quicker because it was a leadership group. But 
asked him questions, drew him out, and then basically said, you know, Kurt, it seems like you're never, well, it is like, you never share <laughs> your own weakness and struggles. And so we began to talk about that, and we explained that, that that doesn't help us because we're trying to share with each other and learn how the gospel applies to our lives. And so for Kurt, speaking the truth in love meant talking with him about the fact that his actions and his, his lack of relating to the group honestly and sharing his struggles was denying the gospel. And we did that gently. We, did, we took some time. And we, and we didn't force it on them, too. We said, well, why don't you think about it? Go talk to some people who have known you for a while. See if they agree. See what they think. Well, this, to his credit, this man, Kurt, so-called Kurt, was very humble and went to others and asked. And, and you know what happened? All the others said, you know what? That is a pattern we've seen in your life. So he came back and he said, guys, thanks. You're right. He, didn't, he wasn't even really aware that he was doing that. And as a result of that speaking the truth and love in his life, he started to open up. And that accountability group was a wonderful season for us of growing in gospel-centered living and applying the gospel to one another's lives. Does that, does that, help? Does that help illustrate how that works? Um, I can do some other scenarios. I, I can actually, some of the other ones I have are composite fictional scenarios. So let's say there's Wilma the Worry Ward. Wilma the Worry Ward. I hope there's no Wilma in our midst here. But Wilma is your friend. Wilma is in your small group, and you've known Wilma for a while. She's a wonderful saint. But Wilma would have a weakness with worry. And, and you're in small group with Wilma, and it's one of those times again, Wilma is sharing with you the latest worry temptation for her. Her job is, is being threatened. They are reorganizing at the hospital she works at, and it looks like she may lose her job, and she starts to share with you her worry. What does gospel-centered living, what does speaking the truth in love look like at that point with Wilma? How do you, how do you walk that out? Now, I, I know a lot of you would have great ideas and great counsel for that situation, but I think it looks like this with Wilma the Worry Ward. First off, we get to know Wilma. We establish a relationship because Wilma, because of the gospel, is called to be in relationship with the church. And relationship takes effort and time it takes a lot of listening and a lot of love and a lot of patience. So there's that whole history with Wilma. Before we would take any further steps, we've got to know Wilma. And so there's a relational bridge. There's a, there's a commitment one to another there. She's been in care group for a while. The next step, I think, would be to share with Wilma perhaps some promises of God. After you've listened to her, drawn her out, asked her about the situation, maybe identified with her, said, you know what, I feel like the same way. Just the other week, this happened. And then draw Wilma's attention to the promises of God that come because of the Gospel. So, maybe like our verse, Romans 8.32. If He gave up His Son for us all, how will He not graciously give us all things? Remind her of that. Remind her of the promise in Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer. And petition with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a gospel truth. That's a truth that comes because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, we belong to God so we can pray and He hears us. And in the, in the, the fellowship of prayer with God, he, we experience peace that passes understanding. So you share that with Wilma. Perhaps you pray for Wilma and with Wilma. And then you follow up with her as well. You pray together. And the result will be, over time, Wilma starts to grow. 
starts to learn not to worry. Starts to learn to apply the Scriptures and walk out the truth of the Gospel. So when the next circumstance comes up, she might be concerned, but she might not be worried. And she may know where to go. She may come to you and say, hey, can we pray? And you know what's going to happen too with Wilma as she grows in these things? She's going to be the one who starts doing it herself. Because in order for you to do it, you have already experienced the same things. And so you bring them to Wilma. And that's the wonderful thing about it. As, as we grow, as we learn these things, as we learn gospel-centered living, we start to participate in the giving away of what we've received as well. And you build momentum. And I, I, again, I'm just so glad because I, there's momentum in this church. There's momentum because of you guys getting this and doing this. And so people come in, and a lot of this we do intuitively. We don't necessarily have to, to take out a recipe. We understand and we do it. There's other examples uh, that I could have, and um, we could actually spend a long time just teasing out different examples. Uh, one, one briefly, Larry and Linda. This is a common experience for many of us. We, we come to Christianity, perhaps at some point in our Christian journey, and perhaps we come to the Gospel and we find that we've acquired a baggage of legalism. We've come in and for some reason we've gotten away from the good news and we've begun to go back to the old ways, the worldly ways, which says if I want to gain favor with God, I've got to go earn it. If I want to feel good about myself before the eyes of God, I've got to find something in myself, either who I am or my behavior, in order to present it to God that I might be accepted. That's fundamentally what legalism is. Saying what I do and who I am will gain the essential merit with God. That's contrary to the Gospel. And the book of Galatians comes hard against that truth. Because the Galatians had strayed into that. It denies the Gospel because it says, legalism says, I can atone for my own sins. Christ really didn't need to die because I can do what's necessary to please God. Or it says, Christ needed to die, but I can finish the work. His death, His perfect life, death and resurrection are not enough. And so I must smuggle in some of my action and character to complete His work. That's contrary to the Gospel. And so when we come with that, how does speaking the truth and love work? Well, I, I think a lot of it is you guys, if we meet people like this, and we are going to get, we are like this ourselves, and have been, and we're going to have people come, let them just sit and stew in grace for a little while. Let them just hear about the good news. Let them just hear about grace. Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved. The word grace in, in the New Testament actually means the, the sort of gift given from a king to an undeserving subject that cannot be reciprocated in any way. So grace, the grace of God, is that the King of kings has given us the gift of His Son. And through His Son, our forgiveness, our righteousness. And there's nothing we can ever do to pay Him back. It's a free gift. And for, for those who belong to Him, it's ours. It's all of grace. So let folks like that, let ourselves just stew in that. You know what? It starts to affect things. We start to recognize, you know what? This makes no sense. And it addresses our legalism. It addresses the foolishness of thinking we can earn anything before God. And then it addresses our motivation, too. Because often people that are legalists, they burn out. Because they're trying to please God with their efforts, and they're finding that they can't. And they're wearing themselves out. So often legalists will come not only being 
self-righteous, and I've been a legalist. I can speak from, from history, from my own experience. Not only will a legalist be self-righteous, but a legalist will be burned out. And, and, and their motivation, their zeal for God will wane. And so that's something to ask yourself too, is are you burning out? And could it possibly be linked to legalism? Because you're trying to earn it on your own. But when we understand grace and we realize it's a free gift, that reorients our motivation to God. We're not working to pay Him back. We're working because He has so loved us and we love Him. We're working for Him freely and joyfully because He is most precious and worthy. And we come to understand that grace has given us the ability to see that that God loves us and that He's most glorious and most worthy of our lives. And so our motivations change. So speaking the truth in love for someone like Larry and Linda Legalist is just bringing that gospel truth, bringing grace, and then modeling that. And you guys model this so well because you guys enjoy life in a good way. And that's the fruit of understanding grace. When, when people understand grace, it produces freedom and holiness both together. And you guys model that. You guys are free. It's full of joy. Great to be around. And people, I think, get that. But also, you're serious about walking after God and obeying Him. And it's done from a different mindset than legalism. So that's some examples about speaking the truth in love. And there's many others. As a matter of fact, the rest of our lives will just be doing more and more case studies. We'll be the subjects of the case studies. We'll be part of the case studies sooner or later and, and pretty much continuously as a believer. God is intent on making us as a people mature in Him. God is after corporate Christ-likeness. And so He calls us to practice truthing in love. Speaking the truth in love. Let's, let's close in prayer and have the band come up. Lord, I just thank You so much for Ephesians 4.15 and this truth and the Gospel. Lord, I thank You for the difference it's made in my life, and in my family, in my marriage, and in my children, in my understanding and experience of church. Lord, thank You for putting us in a church some years ago that understood these truths and walked them out. Thank You for the blessing and the good fruit, Lord. And thank You, Lord, for building this church according to this truth. And Lord, we ask You to build it more and more. Teach us how to speak the truth in love. And Lord, use us as we do this on Sundays and in care group and in relationships and throughout life as we walk together. Lord, use the truth in love to build us up and to make us like Your glorious Son. And to serve Your purposes, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. opens the way that I might draw near to you with my heart full of faith your grace is all undeserved 
Grace of God, according to the truth of the gospel. Have a great week. God bless. You're dismissed.